Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, how good it is for me to be with you here this morning in celebrating Christ as we specifically focus on His birth in the Incarnation. And as we do, let us turn in God's Word together to John chapter 1, verse 14. John 1, 14. And as you do so, I wonder, for each of you, for each of us, what do you look forward to most this time of year? I know for some, it's the Christmas presents that are under the tree. Well, for others, it's the time together that we're able to spend with family and friends. And of course, for some of us, it's the delicious meal that we're able to enjoy with plenty of treats. And while all of these are surely blessings from God, none of them compare with the greatest gift of all, Jesus Christ. And so it's in the midst of our busy Christmas celebrations that we need to be reminded of His glory. And that's exactly what we have here at the beginning of the Gospel of John. You know, as he reflects on this verse, the great Anglican J.C. Ryle, one of my favorite writers and, and preachers, says, the passage of Scripture now before us is very short if, measure, if we measure it by words, but it is very long if we measure it by the nature of its contents. The sub substance of it is so immensely important that we shall do well to give it separate and distinct consideration. This single verse contains more than enough matter for a whole exposition, and so I'm going to strive to do so here this morning. So let us read then together John 1. Verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glories of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now let us again go before our Lord in prayer, brothers and sisters. So, oh, Father, we have gathered together this morning in light of our Savior Jesus Christ, in whom you have revealed to us this morning these precious truths through your word. So as we devote ourselves to hearing these truths once again, that you will be with us and bless us, Lord. That in the midst of the difficult year we've had, in the midst of the busyness of the holiday seasons, may we be in awe of Christ in all His glory. And may You be at work as Your sermon is preached, Father, to speak to us this morning that Your very Holy Spirit will empower these words so that we will not only receive these truths, but that we will remember them in our Christmas celebrations and rejoice in them because of the greatness and the glory of Jesus Christ. So we pray that you be with us, Lord, and ask all these things in the name of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, what does the truth, does this verse reveal to us this morning? What's the takeaway? That we must behold the glory of God becoming man. Oh, behold! The glory of God becoming man. 
And this is seen here through two key words in the verse. First, became. And second, beheld. Became. Beheld. Let's consider then the first key word, became here in verse 14, that Christ became our flesh. And as this verse begins, we read, and the word. John begins with the word, which brings us back to the very opening verses of this gospel. So let's go back briefly and read in John 1, verses 1 to 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Now these verses actually send us back even further, don't they? to the very beginning of Scripture when creation itself took place, which is recorded for us in the first five verses of Genesis 1. So let's remind ourselves of what we read in the very opening of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good. And God said, or God divided the light from the darkness. And so God called the day light, and the darkness He called night. So the evening and the morning were the first day. So who do we see was there in the beginning? God. At the very beginning of time itself, God was there. Because God is eternal. See, there is no beginning with God. Since He is the Creator to which all of His creation owes our very existence and life itself. So if you would rewind human history all the way to the very moment when everything came into existence, God was there. And if you could rewind even further before creation, God would still be there because God is always there. It is this eternal God who created the heavens and the earth and His creation exists because He is all-powerful. He was able to bring out everything in creation from nothing. You know, as creative as we may be, we can only take things that already exist and form them into something new. But not God. Not our Creator. He created everything from nothing. But what else do we learn about God as Scripture begins? Did you hear how God the Trinity was in action? Of course, God created the heavens and the earth, but then what did we hear in verse 2? That the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And then in verse 3, God speaks. He said, let there be light. And there was light. Before, there was darkness. But by God speaking, 
Light comes into the world. And through the rest of His creative work, we read of Him creating through His Word. Which is why seven times in Genesis chapter 1, God speaks things into creation. And we come to the eighth time where God speaks. And the very climax of His creation, humanity, comes into existence. Well, this then brings us back here to John chapter 1, where the Word of God is revealed. See, the Word that spoke all things into existence in the beginning was with God and was God. In other words, He was both distinct from God and yet also fully God. See, our Creator God eternally exists as three persons, God the Father, God the Son, or hear the Word, and God the Holy Spirit. And all three persons acted to create our world and everything in it. Now, in Greek philosophy, during the time in which John wrote, they also believed in the Word, or the Logos, as they would have called it. It's where our word logic comes from. But when John speaks of the Word, this Word is far more than an impersonal idea or voice, as the Greeks thought. But this logos, this word, is a person. The second person of the divine trinity, God our Creator. And so into a world of spiritual darkness, of sin and death, God the Word shines in the darkness as the light of men, because in Him was life, eternal life, which He gives all to all those who believe in Him. And this brings us then back to John 1.14, because we read, And the Word became flesh. In these words, then, John proclaims the miracle of the Incarnation of Jesus Christ. And this is far more than God clothing Himself with a human body. God doesn't merely cover Himself with our flesh like we put on our clothes in the morning. We see here that the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, adds a new nature to His divine nature. That when the Word became flesh, God forever brought upon Himself a human nature. So that the person of Jesus Christ has two natures. He's fully God and now fully man. You see, because mankind by nature is enslaved to our sin, we deserve the judgment of God and the condemnation that our judgment brings and are unable to live the life of righteousness that God created us to live. So there's no hope in ourselves. But our hope is found in God alone who can free us from our sinfulness and save us from His judgment, which is why God the Father then sent His Son in love for us. But God requires His image bearers, humanity, to be righteous. Which is why then God needed to become one of us as a man in order to take our place. Our hope is found in God and man coming together in the person of Jesus Christ. Which is why theologians 
and then refer to this as the hypostatic union, which is the union of God's divine nature with a human nature in one personal existence. Now, this is the very truth that Christ church has celebrated through the centuries. And it's the truth that we confess throughout our history. For example, in the Chalcedonian definition. Now, this was adopted back all the way back in 451. But it's still good for us to remember it today. And there's a lot in this definition that's worthy of reflection. But let me read from it here this morning. Therefore, following the Holy Fathers, we all with one accord teach men to acknowledge one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, at once complete in Godhead and complete in manhood, truly God and truly man, consisting also of a reasonable soul and body, of one substance with the Father as regards His Godhead, and at the same time of one substance with us as regards His manhood, like us in all respects apart from sin." As regards his Godhead, begotten of the Father before the ages, but yet as regards his manhood, begotten for us men and for our salvation of Mary the Virgin, the God-bearer. One and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, recognized in two natures, without confusion, without change, without division, without separation." The distinction of natures being in no way annulled by the union, but rather the characteristics of each nature being preserved and coming together to form one person in subsistence. Not as parted or separated in two persons, but one and the same Son and only begotten God, the Word, Lord Jesus Christ, even as the prophets from earliest times spoke of Him, and our Lord Jesus Christ Himself taught us, and the creed of the fathers is handed down to us. Now, I know. This early church creed is enough to cause our heads to spin. But what we find here is that it summarizes well what Christ became in the incarnation. And it protects Christ's church from the many errors that then have cropped up through the years and the centuries that then compromise and contradict the truth that we find here in John 1.14. You know, this isn't merely about theologians debating doctrinal fine points. But this is the precious revelation of the Word who became flesh. Stop to think for a moment about what this verse, what this verse reveals to us. That the one cre- who created the world now becomes a creature in the world. That the one who set the stars in the sky now looked up to see the stars in the sky. That the one who created the animals of the earth now lays in an animal's feeding trough. That the one who made mankind in his image now becomes an image bearer himself when he is born as a baby. But that's not all. Because we go on here to read in verse 14 that the Word who became flesh dwelt among us. Or as this phrase may be more literally translated, He tabernacled among us. You see, this takes us from creation up to the tabernacle where God was present with His people Israel in a tent. 
So as God spoke to Moses in Exodus 25, verses 8 and 9, And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them according to all that I show you, that is, the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furnishings, just so you shall make it. So imagine yourself for a moment that you're with Israel in the wilderness. God has delivered you from slavery in Egypt. And you are waiting year after year after year after year to enter the promised land. And yet there in your midst, as you are there in the wilderness, a tent is set up where God promises to dwell with you. What would you be thinking? What would you be feeling? The comfort and reassurance you would have that you're not alone. That even as you wait for God's promises to come, God meets with you through this holy tent. He is present with His people. But now we find here with the coming of Christ that God isn't merely present in the tabernacle, but He actually becomes the tabernacle permanently by uniting Himself with the human nature so that God's presence will fully dwell with His people forever. So Christ is the one who fulfills the hope of Israel throughout the Old Testament. We see this uh, with when the prophet Ezekiel prophesies of Christ in Ezekiel 37, verses 27 and 28. Listen to these verses. My tabernacle also shall be with them. Indeed, I will be their God and they shall be my people. The nations also will know that I, the Lord, sanctify Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. And all of that is realized here. When the Word became flesh and dwelt or tabernacled among us. But this brings us to the question, why? Why did the Word become flesh and dwell among us? You may remember when Christ was born, that an angel of the Lord appeared and said of His mother, the Virgin Mary, and she will bring forth a son, and you shall call His name Jesus. Well, why? What's the significance of His name? You go on to read, For He will save His people from their sins. This is why the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, to save His people from their sins. You see then how Christ became our flesh for our salvation. That while we could not be the righteousness that God created us to be in our sin, God becomes one of us so that He is the righteousness that we cannot be. And then He takes upon Himself the very judgment of God that we deserve as He pays the very penalty for sin by dying on the cross under the wrath of God. Oh, this, this is the reason Christ came into this world. This is the reason 
The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So I ask you this morning, is Christ your Savior? Is Christ your Savior? Okay, has, has He saved you from your sins? We see here that He is the light who gives life as we live in this world of spiritual darkness and death. Are you then looking to this light to save you from the death and judgment that is to come for you in your sin? Oh, look to Christ. Believe in Him and be saved. It is God who became flesh and dwelt among us, who saves sinners. May you be one of the sinners who rejoices in his salvation today. Christ becoming man is worthy of our Christmas celebrations. But this brings us to the second key word. The, the first key word was became. Then we come in this verse to the second key word, beheld. Beheld, because believers beheld Christ's glory. So here John with his fellow apostles have beheld Christ's glory through their time with Jesus. We go on to read there in verse 14, and we beheld His glory. You see, in Christ, they saw with their very own eyes God's glory as He walked with them and taught them and healed and helped others and offered His own life in their place. This is why John begins in his first letter by writing in 1 John 1.1, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. They beheld his glory. But notice, not all beheld his glory since their sinfulness had blinded them to Christ's glory. See, it is as God gives us sight that we have the eyes of faith to behold the glory of Christ and the miracle of the Incarnation. It is then through the eyes of faith that we see the glory and behold the glory of God in Jesus Christ. Now, as we consider the glory of God, of course, there are many theophanies that reveal the glory of God throughout the Old Testament. For example, we read of the angel of the Lord who comes. These visible appearances of God to His people. Or when Moses came, and what did he see? On the mountain, but the burning bush. Another manifestation or appearance of God. Or when Israel was guided in the wilderness by the cloud of fire, again, another theophany or appearance of God. And of course, there are many of God's appearances or manifestations through dreams and visions in the Old Testament. But now that Jesus has come, the greatest display of God's glory has come. 
since Christ is God with all of his divine glory. Now, of course, there's a sense in which Christ has always been glorious, right? He had an eternal glory in the heavens. But he humbled himself so that his glory would then be seen in the world. Which is why Christ's glory becomes a regular theme throughout John's Gospel. He mentions that Christ's glory is manifested through His signs. But as we go on here through the book of John, we see that Christ's glory is supremely seen in the death and resurrection of Jesus from the dead. So as Jesus speaks of His death, for example, in John 13, verses 31 and 32, so when He had gone out, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified. And God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him immediately. The glory of God being revealed through Jesus' death on the cross to save sinners. Or as Christ later prays to the Father in John 17 in light of his death, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son also may glorify you. Do you see then how the glory of Christ is supremely seen in His death and resurrection when God the Father gives Him the glory as the God-man for obeying God's will and overcoming the very curse of sin, death itself, so that we will have eternal life in Him. This is the glory of Christ. But this verse also reveals more of Christ's glory when we go on to read, it's the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. So what is Christ's relationship to the Father? That He is the only begotten. Now many translations today do not call Him the only begotten. You may have something like He is the one and only. But I prefer here the older translation since they most, more, most closely capture the meaning of this verse. See, this word expresses the unique relationship between the Father and the Son. And this is an eternal relation where the Father has been the Father from all eternity and the Son has been the Son for all eternity. And as mysterious as these relationships are between the three persons of the Holy Trinity, what we see here is that among the three persons, there is no inferiority or subordination between the Father and the Son but each is equally and fully God. Listen to our own Confession of Faith, the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, the second chapter, third paragraph. In this divine and infinite being, there are three subsistences, the Father, the Word or Son, and Holy Spirit, of one substance, power, and eternity, each having the whole divine essence, yet the essence undivided. The Father is of none, neither begotten nor proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father. 
the Holy Spirit proceeding from the Father and the Son, all infinite, without beginning, therefore but one God, who is not to be divided in nature and being, but distinguished by several peculiar relative properties and personal relations, which doctrine of the Trinity is the foundation of all our communion with God and comfortable dependence upon Him. Now, are you starting to see how much theology is packed into this verse? In the midst of all of this mystery, we have the glorious truth of who our Savior is as He came into this world through the Incarnation. And it's this Christ in whom we have our hope. And it's this Christ in whom our very salvation and communion with God depends on in all His majestic glory. then because of the uniqueness of His glory as the only begotten of the Father, we find His glory is greater than of the glory of the angels or the glory of His image bearers because in Him alone is found the glory of God Himself. And it is in this glory that we find our hope of salvation. But brothers and sisters, don't miss the final words of this verse. The Christ is full of grace and truth. Again, here John draws upon the days of Moses after Israel's exodus from Egypt. So let's turn together to Exodus 33, verses 18 to 23, where Moses speaks with God. See, after God agrees to go with Israel as they are traveling in the wilderness and waiting to enter the promised land, we find Moses boldly making another request. So let's read this together. Exodus 33, verses 18 to 23. And Moses said, Please, show me what? Show me your glory. And how did God respond? And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. And the Lord said, Here is a place by me, and you shall stand on the rock. So it shall be while my glory passes by, that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and will cover you with my hand while I pass by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back. But my face shall not be seen. So Moses says, show me your glory. And God replies, I will make all my goodness pass before you. And I'll proclaim the name of the Lord before you. Find then that God's goodness reveals His glory. But not the fullness of His glory. Because they cannot see His face and live. 
Well, now let's go to the beginning of the next chapter, Exodus 34, and read verses 5 to 7. Now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So we see here God revealing Himself to Moses in His glory so that God's people Israel learn that God is full of grace and truth. Yet this is a limited display and manifestation of His glory. Because in their sinfulness, God will visit them in judgment. And they are waiting for the fullness of His mercy and grace to come. That's why D.A. Carson writes about John, chapter 1, verse 14, The glory revealed to Moses when the Lord passed in front of him and sounded his name, displaying that divine goodness characterized by ineffable grace and truth, was the very same glory that John and his friends saw in the Word made flesh. See, the grace and truth that Moses saw of God's glory was fully manifested in Jesus Christ. And when those who followed Christ and believed in Him saw Christ, they saw far more than Moses ever saw because they beheld Him full of grace and truth. In Christ, then, there is a far greater revelation of God's glory than what Moses saw, because Moses could only see the back of God's glory pass by. But those who have seen Christ actually beheld His glory. This is why later, in John chapter 1, the Apostle writes there in verses 16 to 18, a contrast between the Word made flesh and Moses. Let's look there back there together. John 1, verses 16 to 18. We read, And of His fullness, that is Christ, of His fullness we have all received, and grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, But grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. So it's by seeing Christ with eyes of faith that His disciples are able to behold the glory of God Himself who is full of grace and truth. 
You see then that it is through Christ's grace that we know of God's mercy and kindness and love towards sinners who do not deserve His favor. And it's through Christ's truth then that we hear the gospel of the forgiveness of our sins, of our justification before God, of our adoption as His children, and of our receiving eternal life in His presence. Oh, what glory is revealed to us as we behold Jesus Christ with eyes of faith. No, we may not see Him in the flesh, but we see Him as the God-man in the heavens who is now ruling and reigning until He returns. Where He is reigning and ruling in glory as our King and as our Savior. Oh, what glory is revealed to us in Christ through His incarnation. So behold, the glory of God becoming man. May we all behold the glory of God becoming man. And as we open our Christmas presents under the tree, as we spend time together with family and friends, and as we feast on a delicious meal with plenty of treats, may we behold of Christ's glory during this Christmas season and every season that He gives us life. Well, I began with the words of J.C. Ryle. Let me return to Ryle. I love how he so clearly speaks of these things when he writes on this verse. Ryle says, Our divine Savior really took human nature upon Him in order to save sinners. He really became a man like ourselves in all things, sin only accepted. Like ourselves, He was born of a woman, though born in a miraculous manner. Like ourselves, He grew from infancy to boyhood and from boyhood to man's estate, both in wisdom and in stature. Like ourselves, He hungered, thirst, ate, drank, slept, and was wearied, felt pain, wept, rejoiced, marveled, was moved to anger and compassion. Having become flesh and taken a body, He prayed, read the Scriptures, suffered being tempted, and submitted His human will to the will of God the Father. And finally, in the same body, He really suffered and shed His blood, really died, was really buried, really rose again, and really ascended up to heaven. And yet all this time, He was God as well as man. So behold, the glory of God becoming man. And I want to say a special word to you children who are gathered here this morning as well. Are you beholding the glory of God becoming man? This Christmas, I know what many of you are thinking about. You've already seen some presents under the tree. You can't wait to open your presents on Christmas morning. But listen, God has given you a far greater gift than anything you can unwrap under the Christmas tree. And you don't have to wait to open it. 
Because Christ gives you Himself when God becomes man in the person of Christ. And He has taken the death you deserve upon Himself as He has died on the cross in your place. So you can unwrap this gift of love now by believing in Him and trusting in what He has done for you where you will no longer fear death, where you will no longer fear God's judgments, but you will behold the very glory of Christ who is full of grace and truth. And in Him, you can then celebrate this Christmas the glory that God has given to you through Jesus Christ as your Savior. So turn away from your sins and repentance and turn to Christ in faith. May we all be those who behold the glory of God becoming man. Listen, do not let this Christmas go by by simply enjoying the presents under the tree. But may this be the first of many Christmases where you behold the glory of God becoming man. May we all behold Christ's glory. Let us pray. Oh, Father, how richly you have revealed Christ to us this morning through one verse of Scripture. John 1.14 May this be more than a sentence in our Bibles. But may these truths lead us to behold the glory of Christ. As the Word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. May we indeed behold His glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. May this then lead to a true season of celebration as we rejoice in Christ's coming to save sinners in whom our hope is found and in whom our salvation is sure. May we indeed continue our celebration then, Father, through this season and every season as Christ is with us. And we ask these things in His glorious name. Amen.